Hebrews chapter 3. We're in verses 1 through 6 tonight. That's as far as we're going to get. It's Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read it to us, and then we'll go ahead and start breaking it down. It says, Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest, whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house, if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. To get started tonight, what I want to do is I want to take a look at how he describes the hearers and the readers of this book in the beginning of this section and in verse 6. Look at what he says here. He calls them holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling. He then later on calls them God's house. But then he says, if you hold on to your courage and the hope which, we, which you boast. And I just, I wrote in my notes, why does he keep doing that? Why does he keep saying, hey, Chosen ones, holy brothers, loved by God. And then, if you hang on, you remember, the reason is he doesn't know the full spiritual condition of his audience. He knows that if they have truly trusted in Christ, they are God's house. They are secure. They are sharing in the heavenly calling. He also knows that there may be those who have not truly been born again yet, have not received the forgiveness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, who may be like a Judas as we've looked at. They may be like those who have professed it but don't possess it. And there, it is possible for those to walk away. It is possible for them to turn away from the faith. And because he doesn't know the true state of his audience... He has to speak that way. And by the way, you're going to see it continue all the way through the book of Hebrews. Encouragement to those who are His and warning to those who might not be. Now, some of you are going to sit there and say, Okay, Jim, we can't really argue with you. You know, you're making a recording here and we can't talk. But, but how do we know that that's what He's really doing here? How do we know that He's really speaking encouragement to the believers and warning to the unbelievers? Well, the answer to that question, if you're thinking of it, is this. The context of this passage is going to show you that that is what's going on and also what this passage is going to launch into next study is going to show this as well. So what I want to do, we'll come back to the context of this passage. I want you just to kind of flip over to where we're going to look at next, where we pick up in our next study. I'm not going to read the section of chapter 3, verses 7 and following into chapter 4, but I want you to just look at your headings in your Bibles if you have those, how he then gives a warning against unbelief. So where he leaves off launches into a warning against unbelief, which we'll get into in our next study. But at the same time, he then says, as he warns about unbelief, in doing so, he quotes from an Old Testament passage in which he then proves that there was still an offer offered of rest in the future. And so when God was talking about how these who wandered in the wilderness should never enter my rest... The psalmist in chapter 95 of Psalms, as we're going to get to next study, starts using that passage and saying that there still is a future rest for the people of God. And he says that there's still an offer then to rest. And look at chapter 4, verse 3. He says, Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. And then he quotes from there. And we'll come into that study next time. But what I want you to see is that the context of what we're going to look at tonight 
is going to deal with the fact that there are those who are secure if they've been born again through Jesus Christ. There is still a warning, though, because the Hebrew writer doesn't know the full state of everyone here. That's why whenever I preach in front of wherever I'm preaching in this country, I will encourage the believers that they're fine. Relax. Take a deep breath. Rest in God. Stop trying to earn His favor. At the same time, warn those who are in the room that you better be careful and make sure you know that you're His. Why? Because I don't know the, everybody's true spiritual state. The Scripture does it all throughout. The problem is, is there have been people, though, who have taken the warnings and tried to use the warnings against the believers. And tonight, I want to try to clear that up for you and so that you would learn how to understand, to interpret the Scriptures and learn how to understand from the truth of the whole of the book that the warnings are not for the believers. The warnings are for those who aren't yet yet. And that in this book is a book full of encouragement for those of us who are in Christ. So let's go and take a look at the context now of verses 1 through 6. All right, He says, Holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and the high priest whom we confess. Look at verse 2. He, Jesus, was faithful to the one who appointed him. Now there's a lot that is said right here that I want to take the time to deal with. All right, The scripture says that Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed him. Who is who? God. He was faithful to God and also later on he'll go on in this section to say that he was faithful over God's house. And then he says we are God's house. So we're going to take a look at that tonight. So put a bookmark here in Hebrews 3. Go to John chapter 6. Now, these are some scriptures that I want you to make sure you write down for the purpose of you going and chewing on them some more yourself. Uh, also, for the fact that you might be needing to use them later on when you deal with someone who is still questioning the security of the believers who have been sealed by the Spirit of God. In John chapter 6, look at verses 37 through 40. All right, J- Jesus is speaking here. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me. Do you see it? But raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. And I will raise Him up at the last day. The Hebrew writer said that Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed Him. And Jesus Himself said, I have only come to do His will, not mine. And let me tell you a part of His will. His will is that everyone He gives me, I don't lose. If you have been given to Jesus by the Father, He is not going to lose you. Now, some of you are sitting there saying, wait a minute, wasn't there a place where Jesus said that He he didn't lose any of them except one? Yeah, there is. And I want you to turn there. Go to John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying. And he's He's in the garden right before the cross. And I want to start in verse 6. John chapter 17, verse 6. He says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. 
They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they're still in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Talking about the relationship that we have with the Father, the same as the one as Jesus. Look what he says. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Now, there's a couple things we need to pull out of this passage that will help us become more clear. The first thing I want you to see is the word except is a horrible translation. Actually, the best translation of this word would be the word but. Yours says but the son of perdition. Wonderful. That's a better translation. None has been lost but the one who never was. All the way through, Jesus knew. He still gave him opportunity. Jesus, Judas had a choice. Judas had a chance. Jesus continued to reach out to Judas. He said when Judas was in the garden coming to arrest him, Friend, why have you come? Jesus washed Judas' feet. Jesus was continually reaching out to Judas because Judas had a chance. But Jesus is also God. And He also knows, being outside of time, how it's all going to play out. And He also knew that Judas never would be and never was one. That's hard for us to grasp. Folks, please don't hurt yourself trying to make that fit. Leave it alone. God knows, yet you have a choice. And there's too many people out there who have greater intellect than I, but unfortunately aren't smart enough to know you can't figure that out on this side of time. And just leave it alone. But I want you to understand what he's saying here. It doesn't, Jesus did not say, I didn't lose any except when I lost. He's saying, I didn't lose any. There was one, though, that was never ours. But look closely, and you'll see it even more clear there. Look what he says. He says, protect them. How? By the name you gave me. Well, what happened to these disciples after Jesus left the earth? They were scattered. What happened to them, though? They all were martyred. So did the Father answer Jesus' prayer? That's what the protection he's talking about here. He's not saying protect them in the sense of don't let harm come to them. He's not saying protect them and don't let them get sick. The protection he's talking about is from the evil one who would like to separate them from the Father for eternity. And Jesus is praying, Father, I've held on to them and protected them by the name you gave me. Satan can't touch them. I want you to keep doing it after I leave. And folks, the Bible is clear. If you have been born again by the seed of God, and you're going to see this even more clearly. I'm not done proving this to you. But if you have been born again by the seed of God, that seed is imperishable, the Scripture says. So, whenever you see warnings about watch out or you may, it's not talking to those of us who have been sealed by God, who are protected from the evil one. It's talking to those who are among us who haven't yet truly trusted Christ. And that's why the Hebrew writer writes the way he does all throughout this book. I want to show you some more illustrations of this. I want you to go with me to First John, sorry, First Timothy chapter three. Now, in this passage in Hebrew three, Hebrews three, we are called God's house. 
Alright, and Jesus was faithful over all of God's house, the scripture says. So let's take a look at what that means a little bit. And in doing so, you're going to see even more the security of those who, of us who have received His Spirit. Alright, 1 Timothy chapter 3, look at verses 14 and 15. Paul's writing to Timothy and he says this. He says, I hope to come to you soon. I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Okay? The scripture here says that the church is the house of God. The nation of Israel was the house of God. God's building, if you will. God's construction project. He was building for himself a people who would follow him and be his people. And Moses was faithful over God's house that he was responsible for. Jesus has been faithful over the house that the Father made him responsible for. And that is the church. Alright? It becomes even more clear in 1 Peter chapter 2. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at verses 4 through 10. Peter says, As you come to Him, Jesus, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God, and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see it? The difference is belief or unbelief. Faith or no faith. For those who have faith... They're secure. Because God seals the deal. Those who do not have faith, they haven't received the Spirit yet. And they're not sealed. But once you are, you're secure. And you then become God's house that He's building. And Jesus is, has, and, is and has been faithful over all of God's house. In 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verse 23. I quoted it to you earlier. Look at what it says there. I want you to see this. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. Now that's going to be important for us because of where we're going to go next. And that's in 1 John. Go to 1 John chapter 5. I quoted this to you, verse 13, earlier tonight before we started our recording. How John says here in 1 John chapter 5 verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not hope, not wonder, not worry, not fear. That you can know. But it becomes even more absolutely clear in chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. Look at what it says here in chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Doesn't mean you don't sin. 
But it doesn't continue in the way that it was before. Listen to what he says. The one who was born of God keeps him safe. That's Jesus. And the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are the children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Do you see it? Remember, your salvation is kept in heaven for you. So back here, go back to Hebrews chapter 3. When it says here in Hebrews chapter 3 that He was faithful to the one who appointed Him and He was faithful over all of God's house, there's a lot that's said in that verse right there. Because Jesus did everything the Father had sent Him to do and a big portion of His will was that He would lose none that the Father had given Him. Folks, if you are His, even though the Hebrew writer is sending all these warnings... If you know you're His, relax. The warnings aren't for you. The warnings are for those who may walk away because they don't have it yet. But here's the difference. There's a big difference between doubting whether or not you're saved and knowing you're lost. Now I want you to hear this. I'm going to say this again. This is extremely important. All of us have gone through times where we've had that fear of, am I saved? Am I really saved? You know, did I trust Him right? Did I, did I pray the prayer correctly? You ever been there? You've all been there, haven't you? There's, that, that's a part of us being in this stinking flesh. But there's a difference between wondering if you're saved and knowing you're lost. And let me tell you something about your God. He doesn't stutter. If you're just in that turmoil of, am I saved? I trusted Him. I hope I did it right. I I sure hope He gave me salvation. If you're in that point, relax. Because if you're not His, God is very capable of convincing you that you're not His. And helping you to understand that you're not His. It's not going to be this, I wonder, oh God, am I alright? I went through a two year period where that tormented me. I was an associate pastor in New Orleans. It was the most miserable two years of my life. And I don't know, I've shared some of this, this with some of you, but I'm going to share it again. I was associate pastor at this church in New Orleans, and I've been in the most terrible time of wondering whether or not I'm saved. Sadly enough, uh, um, Satan used preachers to cause me to question and worry and doubt because they'd get up there and tell stories about this deacon had been a deacon for 30 years and then he found out he wasn't saved and it caught him by surprise. He didn't know, you know, all that kind of stuff. And a preacher had been a preacher for all these years. And I actually, at the end of this one service, was down front standing as one of the associate pastors at this big church dealing with people that are coming forward at the invitation and I was sitting there going, I'm not sure if I should even be up here. I'm not sure if I'm even saved. And I finally had another pastor take my post there at the front of the church and I went and prayed at the altar. And this is what I prayed. Oh God, if I'm not saved, would you just show me right now? I'll be bold enough to stand in front of this church that I'm a pastor at and tell them that I'm not a Christian. And so here's what I need from you, God. I need you to have someone just put their hand on my shoulder and say these words. And I don't remember what the words were, but I remember I said, Lord, have someone put their hand on my shoulder and say these words and I'll stand up and tell people that I'm lost. Somebody put their hand on my shoulder and I broke into a cold sweat. But they didn't say the magic words. They said this. Jim Capel's wife, Beth, would like to be baptized. Would you be willing to run up into the baptistry and baptize her? And the whole time I'm getting the waiters on 
Here's one of my best friends of life. His wife is going to be baptized, professor faith in Jesus Christ. And the whole time that I should be celebrating and enjoying this, I'm putting the waiters on saying, I don't know if I should even be baptizing this person. I'm not sure if I'm even saved. And it wasn't until finally God showed me that His Spirit gives us insight to the Word. And that's one of the evidences that we're His. And the helmet of salvation needs to be put on so the enemy can't attack you there that I finally got that sucker settled. But I'm telling you, there's a difference between wondering if you're saved and knowing you're lost. So if you're sitting here tonight and you're wondering, knock it off. If you are lost, God is able to show you your true condition and you know that you're lost. There's a difference. And I'm sorry if preachers have been used to do you harm. They did it to me too. But the truth of the matter is this. The Scripture is beyond clear that if you have been born again of imperishable seed, God holds on to you and the evil one cannot touch you. Oh, he can mess with your head. He can maul you for a while because you let him because you don't know the truth. But if the sun sets you free, you're free. Relax. Now, are there a bunch of warnings against unbelief? Yes, because the Hebrew writer was talking to a group of people who had professed Christianity who were saying, you know what, why don't we just skip this Christian thing and go back to Judaism? You know what, you'd say the same thing too. Make sure you got it. Make sure you got it. Because if you're thinking about going back, something's messed up. Alright? Now, let's keep going in our study here of Hebrews chapter 3. Here in chapter 3, we see the Hebrew writer encouraging his readers to fix their eyes, or sorry, not their eyes, their thoughts on Jesus. Some, some of your translations will say, consider Him. Now, in chapter 12, you're going to see him say, fix, our eye, fix your eyes on Jesus. Your eyes, not your thoughts. But here he says, I want you to think about Jesus. Alright? Now, why, by the way, is the Hebrew writer even comparing Jesus with Moses? Does anybody have any idea? That's right. If they're thinking about going back to Judaism, Jewish people, man, Moses is their man. I mean, there are many more people more great in the eyes of the Jews than Moses. And you're going to see a few things of that tonight as we take a look at some passages. But Jesus is greater than Moses. And the Hebrew writer is saying, look, if you're even thinking about going back to Moses, as faithful as he was, Jesus is even more faithful. And he says, I want you to consider Jesus. Let's think about Jesus for a minute, is what he says. Now, we looked last week at how... Jesus is the perfect high priest. But today, he's described as an apostle. Do you see it? Jesus is described as an apostle. Wait a minute. I don't remember Jesus being one of the apostles. Remember the word apostle means sent one. Or one sent with a mission. God still uses apostles in his church today. I don't believe there's any more capital A apostles where the scripture says the marks of the signs of an apostle in the early church were. The signs and the wonders having been taught by Jesus face to face. But I believe there are still apostles because the scripture term means sent ones. In Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16, the scripture says that he gave the church some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. And what God's got me doing now, traveling around this country to equip the church through the preaching and teaching of the word, it's an apostolic type of ministry. But I'm not an apostle with a capital A. I don't have that kind of authority. I just am a sent one. Cindy's a sent one when she goes to Haiti on the missions that God has given her to go do her work over there with hopes of righteousness. But she's not going to put on her business card Apostle Cindy, right? You know what I mean? Hopefully not, right? Yeah. 
But Jesus was sent by the Father to accomplish the purpose that God had sent for him to do. He was sent on a mission. And just as I said, as Moses was faithful to do what God had appointed him to do, Jesus was faithful to do all appointed him to do. But not only that, and here's what the Hebrew writer says, but Jesus, since he's God, being the builder of everything, is even greater than Moses. Do you see it? Moses was faithful as a servant in his house. He was a part of the house. Remember? He was a part of the nation of Israel. He was faithful as a servant in the house that he had been given responsibility to lead. But he was also a part of the house. Jesus was faithful over the house that he had been responsible to lead. But he's not a part of the house. He is head of the house. He is the builder. And that's why the Hebrew writer says, look over here. He says in verse 3, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Alright? So, when he says, the, the one, and I'll get right to you, Scott, the one whose builder of the house is greater honor than the house itself, he's describing Moses as the one who's described as the house itself. Go ahead, Scott. But, uh, Jesus is also the cornerstone. He's the cornerstone, the capstone. He became like us. He's a... He's a part of that in that sense, in the fact that He's the foundation, the Scripture says, but He's also the head. Actually, it's kind of we know that He's a part in that sense, in the fact that He became like us, as we looked last week, and He understands our frailty and our humanity, but at the same time, He's God. He's God. And so He's the foundation, the capstone, the, <laughs> the walls, the head. He is the all in all. Do you realize the more we understand the depth of the theology of the Bible, the more we come to realize, you know, we're just along for the ride, and we're going to be rewarded for going along for the ride by faith. And He does stuff through us, but we didn't really do it. He's the one that does it, because it's Him who works and acts in and through us according to His will and purpose, the Scripture says in Philippians 2. Do you realize it's going to be very easy for us to lay our crowns at His feet when we get to Revelation, because we realize, I didn't do this. You know, you did this. You know, man, we've made Christianity a lot more hard than it really is. We've made it a lot more miserable than God ever intended it to be. Trying to be good enough. And that's going to be important. Keep that in your mind as we draw this lesson to a close tonight. Because I don't want you to sit here and just look at these Hebrew uh, Jewish Christians thinking about going back to Judaism. There's something in here for us tonight. This isn't just knowledge of what was really going on in that historical time period. There is something through the Spirit of God for every one of us who are Christians today. And, uh, and we'll get to that as we wrap this up. But let's talk about Moses then. Let's, let's, let's take a look at how Jesus is greater than Moses. But in doing so, it would help us to look a little bit at Moses. Alright? For the Jews, there aren't many people as important as Moses. He rescued God's people from slavery. Remember, he was the one that was used to God to lead him out of the slavery. Um, it's interesting to me how over time people begin, become more and more famous and more and more popular. What people don't realize is we sit here and we look at you know the prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And Do you realize that those same people that we venerate now and, and, and brag about now were hated in their day? Does anybody realize that you know, the prophet Jeremiah spent most of his time hiding from the people who were trying to kill him or beat him up? 
And actually, as much as they brag on Moses, do you ever think back to what Moses went through leading those people? He was, well, let's go back to the beginning. God says through the burning bush, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. He does it. Pharaoh says, uh-uh. Now you've got to do just as much work, but you've got to provide your own straw. And the Scripture says that the Israelites hated Moses because of it. And then, of course, they come out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness. And what do they do all the time? Complain, gripe, moan. Moses, uh, Aaron and Miriam start complaining. You're going to see that tonight. Well, Aaron and Miriam complain against Moses and God has to strike them with leprosy. And we look, they look, But the Jews look back and say, oh, Moses, he's our man. Boy, it wouldn't have been nice if he had been their man while he was alive. You know what? We do that with preachers too, don't we? We think back to that man who has been the pastor for 30 to 40 to 50 years and we think, talk, man, he was a great, great pastor. Oh, but man, no one knows the misery he went through in the 30 years that he was there from all the people questioning his leadership and wondering if he really was doing a good enough job and he didn't visit me enough and all this kind of stuff. Over time, everybody starts to look better. So, I'm just hoping y'all live long enough to make me look good in time. You know what? Many Jews even credited Moses with providing the manna in the wilderness. Do you know that? Many Jews actually think... Go to John 6. I'll show you what I'm talking about. John 6, verses 30 through 33. John chapter 6, verses 30 through 33. So they asked Jesus, they asked him, What miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate manna in the desert, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Look what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He knew what they were saying. Hey, you're acting like you're pretty big stuff here, Jesus. Moses brought a, gave us bread in the wilderness. What are you going to give us? And Jesus said, Moses didn't give that to you. Not only that, go to Numbers chapter 12. You'll see they thought Moses was the stuff because Moses spoke with God face to face. Numbers chapter 12. Look at verses 4 through 8. This is the story where um, uh, Miriam and Aaron oppose Moses and they say, Hey, you know, why does he think he's the only one that hears from God? God speaks through us too. And Lord, verse 4 at once the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and Miriam, Come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. Numbers chapter 12, starting in verse 4. All three of you. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When both of them stepped forward, he said, listen to my words. By the way, when God has to say, listen to my words, think about it. Because is there any words that God says that are not worth listening to? But when God says, listen to what I'm about to say, we're talking some serious stuff's about to be said. God says this, when a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. By the way, that's where the Hebrew writer has been quoting from. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face. Clearly, not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. 
Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And then, of course, the anger of God comes and leprosy comes. Moses was pretty special. But I want to deal... We're going to to chase a rabbit for a minute. Because there's a confusion that's out there in Christendom right now about this passage. And I don't like to always chase rabbits, but sometimes it's valuable if you can actually catch it. And I believe this is a rabbit we can catch. Alright? Did Moses see the face of God? Here it says, he spoke with God, or God spoke with him face to face. The question is, did Moses see God's face? Because, go with me to Exodus chapter 33. That's backwards, by the way, for some of you. Alright, I turn forwards too, so that's why... Exodus chapter 33. Look at verses 12 through 23. Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. And if you're pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. (coughs) Excuse me. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. But my face must not be seen. We've got Christians fighting right now over whether or not Moses saw the face of God. Numbers 12 says God spoke with him face to face. But here God says, no one may see my face. And God clearly told Moses, I'm not going to let you see my face. The answer is actually very simple. Moses did not see the face of God. Actually, part of the problem is the translation there in Numbers 12, where it says face to face. In the Hebrew, it's more of a picture of mouth to mouth. Allison's already back there ahead of us. It's a picture of mouth to mouth. In other words... When God would speak to prophets, He would give them a dream or a vision, and He'd say, what do you see? And they would see the dream or the vision, and they'd hear the voice of God, but they would be dealing with the vision. Moses was in God's presence. He saw the form of the Lord, what form God allowed him to see. But he did not see His face. It was a mouth-to-mouth communication, not via a dream or a vision, But God was in the presence of Moses, speaking with Moses. Did he literally see the face of God? No, he did not. But there's some really neat stuff, though, in there. Go to Exodus 34, verse 5. The passage that we just saw referred to is happening now. Then the Lord came 
down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And we don't have time to go look at his name and all that. But go to Exodus 34, verses 29 through 35. It said, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. Moses got to go into the presence of God and speak with him face to face, if you will, or mouth to mouth. He didn't see the face of God, but he did see the form of God, and God spoke to him directly. Not in dreams and visions. He experienced his glory. Now folks, the scripture says that because of Jesus... And because of what has been accomplished, we may boldly not only go into His presence, we may go right to His throne. Do you know what's sad? A lot of Christians today think, I can't ask God for that, I haven't been good enough. You don't understand what Jesus has done. It has nothing to do with whether or not you're good enough. Thank God it has nothing to do with whether or not we've been good enough. Jesus has made you good. Holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling. Jesus has been faithful in God's house and over God's house. He has been faithful to do everything that the Father sent Him to do. Oh, and by the way, the Father sent Him to bring you near. And you now may boldly, with confidence, knowing that you're saved, knowing that you have eternal life, knowing that you are right before God, go into His presence. But we think, I can't ask God for that. I've not been good. The sad thing is, a lot of preachers have told you that. And it's not true. Now, does God care about your behavior? Yes. As any loving parent would. But it doesn't change how he looks at you. It doesn't change whether or not you can come into his presence. For too often, we have been trying to take Old Testament passages and make them apply to New Testament Christians. It's the same God. Please do not hear me say there's an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. No, it's the same God. But we are now on this side of the cross, folks. And the veil has been removed. We have been able to go into His presence. And He loves you. And if there are some things in your life that He's not pleased with, He'll deal with it. He'll deal with it in love. He'll deal with it in discipline. It doesn't feel like friendly love at times, the Scripture says. But it is all from His hand of love. Why don't you relax in His presence and stop cowering and understand that a holy God says you are His. Jesus has been faithful to do all that the Father sent Him to do. And that was to go get you. To make it possible for you to be able to come to Him. And He's done it. You know what? 
Verse 5 tells us, back in Hebrews chapter 3. Verse 5 tells us that Moses' faithfulness in his role, although commendable, was actually only a picture of what Jesus was more fully to do in the future. Do you you see that? See what it says? Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. In other words, what Moses was doing was was giving us a picture of what Jesus was going to do more fully. In in, uh, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1, it says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are to come. Not the realities themselves. Moses' obedient faithfulness was a picture of Jesus' obedient faithfulness, and Jesus even topped it. So here's what I want to wrap up with in the time we have tonight. It's easy for us to sit here and to say to those Jewish Christians, don't go back to the law. (laughs) Why would you go back to the law? Jesus is greater. Don't go back to Moses. Jesus is greater. It's easy for us to sit here and think how foolish it would be for them to even consider going back to Judaism. But do you realize that when we as Christians who have been set free from the law who have been brought into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, who are now no longer under the law, but under grace, when we try to earn God's favor through obedience to the law, we do the exact same thing. Oh, we don't call it Judaism. We don't say we're changing religions. But in a sense, you are. And folks, please don't hear this as chastisement or judgment. I've done it too. I actually was raised that way. And I'm about to, by God's grace, in the ten minutes we have left, preach to you the entire message I just preached this past Sunday at First Merritt Island from Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Because there's five things I want you to see from Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. If you want the full version instead of the Reader's Digest, you'll have to go to First Merritt Island's website and download it from there. But for right now, I want to wrap up with an encouragement to us as believers in Jesus Christ not to go back to the old way either. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 1-6, through look at what Paul says. He says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Excuse me. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. If you're taking notes, I want you to write down five things from this passage that I want you to see. The first one is this. Freedom is God's purpose for us. Freedom is God's purpose for us. Now don't miss this, because many Christians have. You know how I can tell? Because most Christians today have painted such a picture of what it means to be a Christian that non-Christians see Christians as people who don't do certain things or have to do other things, right? Isn't that how Christians are seen? When you tell someone you're a Christian, they think, oh, you're the people that can't do this and can't do that and have to do these things. The picture we have painted is not freedom. It is law. So the first thing I want you to understand is freedom is the purpose that God has for us. 
Now, by the way, let me clarify something for you right now as we deal with this word freedom so you understand what I'm saying. When I talk about freedom, I'm not talking about a license to do anything you want. People hear freedom and they say, oh, so I can do whatever I want. No, the scripture is very clear. Look at verse 13. He says, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The scripture nowhere teaches that our freedom means we can do whatever we want. It doesn't matter. Sin isn't sin anymore. Oh, God still considers sin, sin. That's why Jesus died on the cross. He still sees sin as a serious thing. But when it talks about our freedom, it's simply meaning this. God is no longer measuring you according to whether or not you're obeying the law. You are free from that kind of a standard anymore. You are free. Relax. God sees you totally different now because of Jesus Christ. He's not measuring your performance to determine whether or not you're pleasing to Him. You're pleasing. You're free. Relax. It's not law that He's using to measure you. Second thing I want you to see from this passage is this. Freedom is uncomfortable for some. Freedom is uncomfortable for some people. Look at what what he says here. Stand firm then, and don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Who are we supposed to stand firm against? Well, of course, Satan. Satan doesn't want you to know you're free, because if you actually realized you were free, you might actually be fun to be around and become attractive. Let's be honest. We know some godly people that we've known in the church all their life, and they're no fun. Oh, they're faithful. But they don't know what it means to live by faith. You know what? Satan doesn't want you to be free. Because if you actually realized you were free and stopped worrying about whether or not you're performing correctly and whether or not God's happy with you today, someone might actually ask you to give reason for the hope that lies within you. You know, most of us can quote that verse. Be ready to give reason for anyone who asks you to give reason for the hope that lies within you. Guess what? Nobody's getting asked. But you know, when you start to understand grace, people start to ask. And I'm telling you, since I've moved from law into grace, oh, I was saved in 1973, but I went back to Judaism. Don't sit here and mock the Jewish Christians who are thinking about going back to Judaism. We do the same thing. I went back to law. But since I've understood grace, my neighbors are saying, how come you're always so happy? Oh, let me tell you. The biggest worry has been taken care of. You know who else we need to stand firm against? Satan's helpers. I'm not naming names. But you're going to find a lot of them in the church. And you know, people that killed Jesus thought they were doing God a service, didn't they? Stand firm. Don't let yourself be burdened again by yoke of slavery. Freedom actually makes some people uncomfortable. But I'm going to say something about this that God has just opened my eyes to. And actually, I think it will help. And I've never heard anybody in this whole freedom, law versus grace discussion even bring this out. But you know what? When we start saying, if you tell people they're free, then they'll run amok. We've actually just shown our low view of the sovereignty of God. I'm going to ask you a simple question. Is God not big enough to take care of His children who may be misbehaving? Yes. He's begun a good work. He's responsible to finish it. Actually, the Bible even says that not only we've been saved by grace through faith, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. He's even, He's actively involved 
involved in their lives. If his children decide to use this grace as a license for sin, he's big enough to handle that. He doesn't need you and me to put them back under law to make them behave. Actually, the law doesn't make us behave. It actually makes us want to sin more. But we just hide it and pretend to be Christian when we're around other Christians. I actually heard a joke just recently. Take it for what it is. What's the difference between a Baptist and a Presbyterian? The Presbyterian will speak to you in the liquor store. Alright? Take it for what it is. You understand what I'm saying. We have a tendency to pretend to be something we're not. Listen to me. Don't use your freedom as a license to sin. But don't let anybody else put you back under law to try to control your behavior. Your God is big enough to do that Himself. And when we think we need to control people with rules, we show our low view of a God who has saved us and said He would finish His work. Alright? Look at the next. The third thing I want you to see is this. Freedom is way better than slavery. Look at what he says in verse 3. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. Look closely. Folks, if you want to go back under law, you want to earn God's approval and God's points through being a good Christian by obeying the rules and thinking you're better than somebody else because you do the rules better, the Scripture actually says that the law demands perfection. You can't pick and choose which law rules you're going to follow and which ones you're not. If you're going to go under law, you must be perfect. Good luck with that. Freedom's way better than slavery. Fourth thing I want you to see is this. Freedom is where Jesus is. Freedom is where Jesus is. Look how he describes it in verse 2, 4, and 6. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised... Remember, these people were being told, well, God's not fully pleased with you because you have to do this and then He'll be pleased with you. No, no, no. If you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you. It's interesting how he says, the relationship with Christ is what you're going to miss out on. Look at verse 4. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You've, been, you've fallen away from grace. Now, we've already laid the foundation that if you're saved, you're not, he's not talking you lose your salvation. You're going to miss out on the joy of this relationship with Jesus Christ because you're trying to relate with Him through something that He abolished. And look at verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Freedom is where Jesus is, folks. Freedom is where Jesus is. There's a fifth thing I want you to see, though. Freedom will demonstrate itself in love. See, if someone says, well, I have freedom, and then they use that freedom to abuse people or to flaunt their freedom, not being considerate of their weaker brother, that person doesn't understand their freedom. True freedom will demonstrate itself in love. Look at what it says in verse 5. By faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope, and the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. When you really understand the freedom you have in Christ, and He's not measuring your performance to determine your value, but that you are righteous and holy, you're going to stop trying to... Well, you're going to stop viewing God as if He's measuring your performance, and you're going to stop measuring everybody else's performance. Guess what? 
I shared this illustration on Sunday, and I'll try to wrap, with this, wrap up with this. In golf, there's this thing called a mulligan. For those of you that don't know what a mulligan is, a mulligan is a wonderful picture of grace. In golf, if someone hits a shot and it's a bad shot, they sometimes will say, I'm going to take a mulligan. Now, and that means they're going to tee up the ball again and hit it again and count the second shot as their first shot. Now, it's a do-over. Now, this came from a man, actually, whose last name was Mulligan back in New York years and years ago. And he kept doing this so much, they called it a mulligan. And everybody now in the whole world knows what a mulligan is if they play golf. But a mulligan is grace. It's a chance to get a fresh start and do-over. And the Bible says that each of us have been given the greatest mulligan in the world through Jesus Christ. Have we not? We hit bad shots, a lot of bad shots. But Jesus says, they're gone forever. He, he takes the club in that sense. But, here, but in another sense, He still leaves us the club for this reason. He, with that great mulligan comes a whole pocket full of more mulligans. Are you guys going to be sinless now that you're saved? No. But because of the great mulligan, you've got other mulligans now. And God will say, you want to hit another one? Yeah, I really blew that one. Can I hit another one? And he says, take a mulligan. Yeah, your flesh still sins. Now listen, if you really understand the freedom you have in Christ, and the fact that God has not only given you the greatest mulligan, and also a pocket full of mulligans for the rest of your life, He also says, share them with the people around you. Someone around you hit a bad shot. Why don't you come alongside of them? See, when we acknowledge the bad shot, we're not ignoring sin. We acknowledge the bad shot, but then we say, would you like to take him a mulligan? Give him a mulligan. Because freedom, true freedom, will demonstrate itself in love. That's right. Well, actually, Chris, as we... Chris is saying he'll remember that when next time we play golf. Listen, actually, that's a perfect illustration to wrap up with. Let him all wrap up with this, and we'll have done it. Listen, in competitive golf, mulligans aren't allowed, which is understandable. If you're measuring someone's performance for a competition, mulligans are not allowed. But guys, ladies, we're not in competition with each other here as Christians. We're not in competition. We're walking together the path that God has for each of us into our deeper relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, again, thank you so much for this wonderful, wonderful gift of this salvation. And Lord, as we're studying this book and looking at uh, these people in history past who uh, thought about going back, you've opened our eyes tonight that we do the same thing when we try to earn your approval through law. We think of the fact that Paul says, after having begun in the Spirit, you're trying to perfect yourself in the flesh. Father, thank you that you are gracious. Thank you that you're slow to anger, abounding in love. The things that you actually told Moses when you passed by and let your goodness be seen. Thank you that that is the only side of you we see now because your wrath has been totally satisfied through the cross that Jesus Christ took care of for us. Thank you that all we deal with now is your goodness, your compassion, your mercy. Father, you still see sin as sin. And you're working on each of us in many different areas in different ways. But it has not changed for one second how you view us. And Father, forgive us for thinking that we needed to go back to that kind of a relationship to make you happy. May this truth sink in in such a way that all around us have your love for us spill out on them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.